the CEO was like talking about content and then shifted to social media and then onboarding all of this in one hour. And it was like completely overwhelming. And I'm like, I, I'm going to tell him. And I'm like, Hey John, I I'm, I'm hearing a lot. Those are great thoughts. What does this mean in contrast with the priorities that we discussed an hour ago? And, and I could see his face like becoming self-aware of, of the impact that, that it was having. Hello and welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and today I'm super excited to be sharing an episode with my friend, Mario Edowujo. Mario is the former Senior Director of PLG at OutSystems, the former Head of Growth at Softer, and currently a PLG Advisor and Coach, ProductLed.com. Mario obviously has got a ton of growth experience and a ton of growth leadership experience which is really what we dig into in this conversation. We talk about skills for managing up, ways that you can work with CEOs, how to have difficult conversations and approach them from a place that ultimately builds trust, soft skills that you need to thrive while being head of growth, and how to find work-life balance as your team, responsibilities, and accountability grow. Covered a ton of good stuff that if you work in or around a growth team or even just a leadership team at an early stage company, I think you're gonna find a ton of value in this episode. Let's jump right in. Want to take a second and thank Mad Kudu for sponsoring the show. The average SaaS business has a hybrid motion these days. You know, when I was head of growth at Wistit and at Postscript, although we called ourselves PLG, there was a sales team at both companies. Both companies did some outbound. We did inbound. There was the product-led freemium or free trial motion. And wrangling all that stuff to understand lead scoring and quality and PQL routing is a bear. And when I worked at PostScript, we had a Stanford PhD, had a PhD in data science, one of the smartest people I've ever met, spend weeks and weeks and weeks putting together this insane predictive model using our behavioral data to understand who was likely to convert and to upgrade. And it took weeks of doing this. We weren't really able to adjust it after the fact, and it ended up being something that was hard to maintain. And what's great is that now there's these whole suite of tools out there that can help you do this way faster. So Madkudu is typically the one that I send my clients to that if I had in my previous world, those head of growth would have made my life way easier. And what's nice is that they balance the hybrid motion really well. So if you're trying to wrangle PQLs, PQAs, and figure out lead scoring across your hybrid model, check out Madkudu. It's where I send my clients. This episode of the Delivering Value podcast is brought to you by Novatic. If you're listening to this and you have followed me online, it should be no surprise that Novatic is a sponsor. I talk about the interactive demo space all the time. As a former two-time head of growth, I learned pretty quickly that there's a huge percentage of signups that create an account, poke around for a couple minutes, and leave and never come back. If you survey these folks, they usually say, hey, I just wanted to see the product in action for a few minutes. I'm not ready to buy. I don't want to upload my stuff. I just wanted to see it. And so creating some version of your product that's ungated, that people can play with on your website, tends to be super helpful for that population of people. It increases the quality of your users. It weeds out all the clunkers, so from clouding up your data. And it starts the onboarding process way before someone even gets into the product. It's a huge part of the growth operating system. And if you're looking for help building this, so you don't have to take months and months doing it in-house like my engineers did, use Novatic. They create third-party tools that help you do exactly this. I send a lot of my advising clients their way, and they're a great product. Where I figured where we could start the show is with your growth origin story. So like just kind of the 10,000 foot view, 
of who you are and how you got here, like how you got into growth, how you picked up some of the game and where you're at today. And we can kind of jump off from there. So I guess the short, very short version of this is that Wes Bush and Elena Verna brought me into this. Wes got me hooked and then Elena got me nurtured, I would say, or engaged. So that there you go. But uh, I, I started in, in a company called OutSystems a while ago, 17 years ago. I stayed there for like 16 years and I was the software engineering doing software engineering stuff. And someone... At the, I was four years in, we were like 40 people. Someone left the company because they had some personal problems. So they left and I had to start something else, which was leading training. And I, I didn't necessarily want to, but I did. And I did for three years and two out of those three, I was the only trainer in the world. So I taught like 70 live sessions to our users, like very complex product developer focused. In 70 live sessions in like two years. I was flying all over the place. And this and was, was user training, like training actual users training. on how to use the software to be more successful? Correct. And that got me into the nuances of how people experience a product, a so that particular software product. Like this was a product for developers to code less. But you can imagine that some developers don't want to code less. They want to code more. And some of them were like really angry having been put in that situation. And I, I've had those extremes. I have the, I, I've had the other extremes. Anyway, without noticing, I was learning, developing some disintuition about what in that particular context for that particular audience will work, what not. And, and, and someone spotted that. And then I stopped training and became more or less someone that did, would be consulted on how, how do we fix this? What would developers feel about this and what not? So that, that went on for a while. But after this sort of intermediate step, the, the company was outgrowing itself every three months because we started like scaling like a lot. And so I was always brought into these projects that no one was able to solve. I mean, not that I would be able to solve, but I was sort of free. And I became sort of this person where the CEO once said, I don't know who that guy reports to. Because I was always like, they would call me Mr. Wolf. That there's a problem, let's get this guy in. But my last four years, to shorten this up a bit, I met Wes and I, I sort of started thinking more about this, reading more about this. And my two big projects were like developing the community of users to use the product because a product without developers that is for developers doesn't make sense if you don't have those people liking and using it. And the second thing was more of a product growth strategy inside product. And that, that's when I met Elena and, and, and yeah, had the pleasure of being mentored by her for a few years. They called you Mr. Wolf? It, like, like to the Pulp Fiction Mr. Wolf, you know, who would just come in and fix problems. Go on YouTube and, and search for us. The scene is uh, hilarious. But it was just an in-between friend. They would make that analogy. I've been fortunate enough in my career and then making this podcast to talk to a whole bunch of folks that they work in growth and have different backgrounds. And that's one of the common themes. Not that they're called Mr. Wolf, but that there are people that don't quite, like their origin story getting into growth is usually that they're smart and they're hardworking and they like solving different problems that don't fit into traditional siloed teams. And so almost everyone has some flavor of this story where they become some kind of Swiss army knife solving, solving all these cool problems for the business. And what's cool, you know, you shared a background that I haven't heard yet that I actually share. I didn't realize it until you just shared this. So my background is also in software training. Like my first job was at a big ad agency, but then I worked at HubSpot 
And my first gig was working with new HubSpot users that had like just signed up and, you know, on a good day, it was teaching them marketing theory and like helping them problem solve. And on a bad day, it was like, hey, click here, do this. Hey, why didn't you do this kind of stuff? And you talked about how you learned a lot about real users and their actions and their hesitations and their struggles. And I didn't realize it, but I guess I did too. I wonder how common that is in our space. I, I don't know. It, it, it's, uh, you're the first person that I'm within the space that I'm talking about this with. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know how common it is, but definitely it helps. Like there are products out there that were built under the assumption that a human would help. I remember us making those decisions at OutSystems back in the day. We assumed that there was a very good customer success team. There was a very good training team. We would be very like demanding, hiring smart people, good people. And that's a curse and a blessing. Yeah. That's a blessing and a curse. And the curse is that we get lazy into creating products that don't need humans to help you. And I remember us making the intentional decision of... I don't know if it was three years or one year or two, we, trainer will no longer be needed. So what do we need to do? And we started very deeply working with the product team to do that. This like product like growth didn't exist at the time. No one was talking about this. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things. I don't know that I see people like us with training background helping, but I do see the problem of products being built with the assumption that there are humans to help. And that mm -hmm. lowers the bar. For sure. And there's no better way to pick up customer empathy and understand the real user journey and the pain points Precisely. and the jobs to be done, like working with them one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. So I cut you off. So you're at this point, you're Mr. Wolf, you're meeting Elena, you're meeting Wes, you're starting to get more into PLG, understanding the category. What happens after that? So I, I spent like the, my last four years were very intense into these things. So I, I learned as much as I could. I did. I did product lab workshops. I did the ones that I teach now. I, I did the Reforge training. I was reading everything I could. I was networking the heck out of like meeting people and learning from them. We could even go to conferences at that time before COVID, um, some conferences. So that was it. It was just like trying to learn as much as I could up until a point where, and I wasn't like keen on applying the playbook end to end. I think actually that's a mistake. We can go into that later. I was just like, there was so much good stuff that we could use some of the tactics, some of the approaches, frameworks, like on take onboarding, for example, it's just one small piece. But if you just focus on that, you can have impact. Regardless if you go all in PLG or not, it's one thing like removing friction, time to value, all those good things. I was lucky enough to be in a group that also shared the same passion. We went from uh, one person dedicated to this to 100 people dedicated to all things, improving the experience of, of the product uh, in two years. And in parallel, I'm like, I was always thinking, how good am I? I'm doing this at OutSystems. This team is great. And you have a hundred person, a hundred person team just for context. Where do you sit on that team? How do you fit in? There was two people co-leading this team. I was one of them. So there was a product person and an engineering lead, the product lead and an engineering lead co-leading this. So you've got a hundred people, more or less, that are reporting to you split amongst the two leads and you're going heads down on PLG. You're doing all this stuff. And internally you're wondering like, Hey, how good am I really? 
Exactly. So it, it, it wasn't necessarily all in in PLG. It was all in improving the product experience. And we were very passionate gotcha. about applying te te techniques. But yes, you bet. That was like, am I good enough? Can I bring value to other companies, to other contexts, to other reality? And that's when I started looking for advisory opportunities, which I did for free in the beginning. I Fortunately, I cannot do those for free anymore. Well, in some cases, I'll do it just because there's a context that, that makes me want to do it. But that's when I started kind of validating myself outside of that uh, ecosystem. Like, okay, I, I think I can help these folks. I used to tell my wife, at some point, there was sort of a tipping point. I don't know when. I, I would really like to do just this. But yeah, it took, it took more or less three years for doing just this. But uh, I'm having fun. And uh, let's see what happens. It's cool. I want to go a little bit deeper if you're comfortable talking about it around, it's going to be my words, not yours, but around some of the imposter syndrome at this time, because on the outside looking in, right, if I was one of the people on your team or maybe working at a competitor company and seeing what y'all are doing, I think anybody at this level has got it figured out, probably has got some swagger about them. And then you're saying on this, on the show, like, Hey, during this time, I actually wondered how good I really was. How did you manage that? I had a very good team. I, I, I really like the people around us were some of the best I've worked with. And I will always be grateful for, for having um, worked with this team. They, I almost lose my voice because I, I got a little bit emotional thinking about how, how great it was. But anyway, we could just be vulnerable, right? It, my, my boss was also one of the best people I've worked with. We're friends today. And we could just have these conversations. Like we, we would have these moments of, um, he would say, opening up the kimono. Sometimes we would have conversations and he would cry. Like I, I never had a boss that would open up that way. And, and it would just to show how different um, he was. It's impressive. So yeah, just talking through it and whatnot. It's not like I'm going in A. I don't know if I'm good enough for this. But I would um, question myself. I remember one thing that he said at one point that I was feeling completely overwhelmed. And he's like, just do the next thing. Just do the next step. What's the next step? I'm like, it's, yeah, it's either this or that. The three are important. And he's like, just pick one, any, because it's the top three and run with it. And so it, it, it takes, con I guess it's context. It's not something I did. I was lucky enough to have people that uh, would tolerate imperfection and would tolerate you the way you were in that given context. And the next day would be a next day, no judgment, nothing. So that, that was very safe. The comment about just take the next step really resonates with me. Literally last night I was watching on Netflix. I think it's called the Alpinist. It's the story of Mark Andre Fleurick. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. He's like an incredible free solo climber uh -huh. and he's climbed like all these ridiculous peaks and he does it mostly without ropes and it's like a mix of ice and rock and he's got ice picks and ice shoes and he's switching out of his climbing. Anyway, it's incredible. Clearly I, I was geeking out it last night, but in it, they asked him, what do you do when you get into a, a hairy situation or you get into a situation that's dangerous or overwhelming or whatever? And he said, well, you have two options. You can let it overwhelm you and you can let go and fall off the rock or you can just take the next step. And he said, I just try to slow down and remind myself just to take the next step. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say here as well. And it seems like the reason why you were able to do that is because you had the right environment. And I imagine that part of that's because you worked there for a long time and you built up this trust and this rapport. But do you remember how that started? 
so our, our CEO at the time, Paulo, still CEO of OutSystems today, was really intentional about creating a great culture. He was really worried about what culture we were going to create. And he was very mindful of making sure that wouldn't break. It was very easy when we were 40 because we were all in an open space like this where you know you can do this and see the whole team. Yeah. Uh, like I remember the phone was ringing. It was everyone's job to pick up the phone. And like sometimes he would yell, can someone pick the phone up? Because he was already on another call or whatever. Or it was everyone's job to pick up the mail, he would say. I have to attribute how it started and the success to him because he would always be very good at evaluating what's going on with this group and what are the principles that we need to agree on to to make this group work better. You know, retrospecting on things that went bad. I'll give you an example. Uh, CEO drives by and says, hmm, uh, here's an idea. Why don't you create a tutorial that blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly seven people were just doing that uh, without understanding what impact the CEO wanted to have with that idea, if that was an idea or an order or something like that. And so they're just doing it because the CEO is the CEO and they're not the CEO and they think I need to do this. This is good for my career. Or, or I need to do this because the CEO says, and you know, he's the boss or whatever. So, and then at some point, if we retrospect, he's like, oh, I didn't want you to do anything. I was just sharing feedback. And he, you know, with, with little things like that, he came up with five or six rules that we'd, we would all follow. Well, actually, we came up with them all together. He did a great job distilling them. One of the rules was ask why. Everyone at the company would have the responsibility to ask why, and everybody in the company would have the responsibility to answer why without being offended, defensive, or whatever. Like context is important. Why are you doing this? What's the impact and what not? And so this was just a very first step of the culture that he created. There were more uh, elements. You can actually go to outsystems.com and get the culture book. It's all there. There's the ask why rule, be helpful, communicate to be understood because we were all a bunch of geeks and no one really understood what we were saying at times. And there were many other, like, uh, oh, this one was one of my favorites, the small crisis rule. Just stop the crisis when it, while it's small. So, so you need to speak up about, you know, I, I would get people coming into my work and say, hey, you're doing this wrong. And I would have to let them because it's, it's the rule. We can, go, we can all spot crisis, small crisis, and uh, identify them. So, yeah, and he was always talking about the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal? Why are you doing this? What's your aim? And so it started with culture. I know I'm, I rambled a little bit, but it, it's, it, it's not a simple answer, I guess. No, it's super interesting because, you know, as a coach, one of the things that I'll work on with folks, if they're in a, a new job, especially, is usually two artifacts. One is their growth strategy, and the other one is their growth operating system. And typically, folks who work on growth teams work differently than other teams. And so if you don't define that and write it out and have core values and frameworks for how you want the team to get the work done, other teams might not understand and future team members might not understand. Yeah. So what I was thinking about as you shared that is those are actually some really interesting operating principles that although it applied to everybody are really good for folks who work in growth, right? Asking why, always making sure they understand why you're doing something, the impact that could make 
being helpful. I mean, I call my business delivering value. Like that's my whole approach to growth. Yeah. Communicate to be understood, understand what you're trying to learn. All those are things that I think are great parts of the growth OS. And going back a little bit, you shared something that when I was in-house, I encountered all the time and a bunch of folks who I chat with in growth encounter all the time, which is the CEO comes over and share some idea, and then you feel pressure to just go. And so you shared asking why is like a good way to slow down, but what other advice would you give to folks when they're in that position? I have a problem, a curse and a blessing. It's like, what's your biggest uh, flaw, right? The job interview um, question. This is a problem, and this is uh, also um, an advantage. It's like, I cannot unsee the world this way. I, I, all of us that you talk with from this team have these rules ingrained in their life. Like I'm teaching my daughter, you need to ask why. Now I, I regret it uh, a bit, but, uh, <laughs> but I know it's the right thing. So what I, what I would recommend is that if they're maybe asking why can sound a bit aggressive, like, why are you telling me that, right? If you think about it this way, but probe, help me understand what you're trying to achieve here. Or I understand you want this, yada, yada, yada. Are you trying to influence the activation rate? Or are you trying to, you know, just try to probe a little bit? And then I would move on to contrast that with the other priorities. Um, and I, 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 I normally am very direct in the question. So I also ask, hey, are you asking me to stop everything to focus on this for a while? Are you sharing an idea? Are you changing priorities? I, I would I would just ask. And try to get that clarity and yeah. then just really spell out the potential resource changes or priority changes. Like to take this on, I would be deprioritizing this. Is that yeah. what you mean? Is that's kind of what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And also in some in some situations, I also need time to think about what they're telling me. And I'm like, okay, give me a day to think about it. I'll come back to you. Uh, let me digest this. I used to be afraid of doing this, but now... If people can give me a day to think about something that could potentially disrupt a month of work, I, I'm like, I don't want to work in this context. So that's, that's what I do. I try to get clarity and I, I try to also look at it from a perspective of empathy. Like I was talking to the CEO yesterday and Mario 2.0 or Mario 1.0, which is the previous version, would, would think like the CEO was like talking about content and then shift it to social media and then onboarding. And that like the, all of this in one hour, he wouldn't shut up all of these ideas. And we already have a list of 15 for two people that just joined. And it was like completely overwhelming. And I'm like, I, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to ask it. I, I was a little bit afraid of doing that. And then, and then I asked the guy, look, is this, too much in, in, on Slack in parallel. And he's like, yes, it's a little bit. Okay, I'm not the only one feeling this way. So I'm going in. So I, I structured my, I, I, I tried to settle down my sort of my emotions. And I'm like, hey, uh, say his, his name is John. Hey, John, I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot. Those are great thoughts. What does this mean in contrast with the priorities that we dis discussed an hour ago? And, and I could see his face like becoming self-aware of of the impact that that it was having and it went better than it could but it, i guess i guess i was proud of me in, in that moment because 
it was my second interaction with with them right so it's um it's a way of also gently telling them how we work best and i hope i can do this with the people that i direct or manage mm-hmm. as well i hope that they can feel comfortable enough to do the same because i i, I can certainly be that person when i'm leading a, a 100 people team or a 10 10 20 people team i can certainly become that person the person that i don't like to report into but, but yeah they you know what he was doing it because he's excited he is creative he was trying to help and uh, he just didn't realize so it's i guess my job to sort of distill the the essence back it up in a clear way and go back to him and say hey here's what we're going to do do you agree with this I chat with a ton of first-time heads of growth that are in a leadership position for the first time, often reporting to the CEO at a Series A or Series B stage startup, and they're scared to do this. And so it takes a lot of courage. And like basically what I heard you say is it took a lot of courage and it was kind of scary. And I'm wondering on the other side of that, if you felt like taking that action improved your relationship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's like, okay, I know this person will challenge me, but also... I think he's going to be comfortable coming to me with ideas, knowing that I'm not going to just go and stop everything and get distracted of what the team decided, what my commitments would be as the team commitments would be. That's what happened with this particular CEO. But I had a team member coming to me and say, hey, I'm glad you did that. We that are here for longer already know, but I'm glad you brought that up so openly and whatnot. It's like, uh, yeah. Thank you for that. I hope you can do the same for me when I go off track at some point. So the answer is yes. It took courage on your part and it took an open mind on their part. Sure. I feel like a lot of times it takes folks a long time to learn this. I fell in this trap when I first got into growth. Uh, I was working at Wistia and Chris Savage, the CEO, he used to always like slack me or share an idea and he would share an idea. I was relatively mid-level in my career and I would do it. Always I would do it and I would do it fast. And I'd, be, and I'd always follow up with them like, hey, man, you shared that idea about, I don't know, optimizing something on the pricing page. I went ahead and did it. I'll report back in a couple of days. And like after two or three of those, he walked over to my desk. This is like in 2015 when we were still in the office too. And he sat down and he was like, hey, man, I'm an idiot. Don't be doing <laughs> stuff because I'm the person sharing it. Like I got plenty of bad ideas too. And he, he like laid it out for me. He was like, my job as the CEO is to make sure when I have ideas, I share them with the right person. He said for growth ideas, focus on acquisition at that time, not product growth just yet. And he said, when I have acquisition ideas, you're the person. So my job is to share them with you. Your job is to figure out if it's a good thing to do. And he said, don't be doing stuff just because it's me. And like, I think I can remember that day vividly. And it's something that I think about all the time. I share that story when I work with uh, coaching clients and things. And he had to spell it out for me. But what's cool is, you were proactive in managing up. And I think that's one of the reasons probably why you were there for so long and so successful. And so I'm wondering if there are other soft skills that you think have been important to navigating your journey in growth outside of managing up, because that's obviously a huge one. My journey is still early, but I would say um, patience would be one, I, I guess, maybe to counterbalance my nature. That's one. Being obviously being curious, I spend a ton of time talking to customers, trying to understand them, browsing through data, trying to ask what what's right here, what's wrong here, 
what can I learn from this? So that that's um, another thing. I always look for three things in people. Let me go on a tangent here that I learned from Patrick Lancioni. Am I humble? Am I hungry? Am I people smart? People smart, it's not just intelligence. It's about more or less emotional intelligence. So I always try to think this is universal. I guess that from the moment I read this, these were the three things that I that I try to hold myself myself accountable to. And also when I interview people, I look for these things. But for specifically for growth, I think patience, curiosity, being humble. And then there's a fair amount of communication and influence, which is something I need to definitely work on, especially if you're in a very, in a highly political organization that can be critical. I've seen a couple of folks leaving their current orgs just because of the amount of politics they had to deal with and how hard it was for them to sort of justify what they were doing. When in essence, the people that were challenging them had a very different agenda than the agenda of, let me pressure test this to make it better. Well, so what do you do if you're in a situation like that? Let's say there's someone listening to this who's in a situation that's somewhere like that, right? So they work at an early stage company. They're dealing with some political challenges, which for context, I think is one of the hardest parts about working in growth is that you are in the middle of every political challenge there could possibly be. And so what does someone do if they're in one of these situations or what are some things that they can do? Obviously, there's no silver bullet. I would, first of all, if, if I feel that there's a lot of politics going on, to me, it's a red flag. I need to clear that immediately, like a 100 people company or less or a 30 or a 10 people company. There's no room right. for politics. There, if you're at high growth, at high growth, software as a service, like with the innovative minds that we normally get in these companies, if there's politic, politics, it's a red flag. And that's why I like the humble, hungry, and people smart rule, because n- not all of us have the three. If you're uh, hungry, you're not people smart, and you're not humble, you're going into the hungry extreme. Or you're people smart, let's say you're people smart and you're hungry, but you're not humble. I would bet this is more the pattern of the political person, or someone would say jerk. They would go <laughs> after their own, they would go after their own objectives and so on. Yeah, to me that's a red flag. And it's a red flag. You may be some of the listeners here may be in a position to say, I need to have a conversation with person A or B to change that. I, I had a, a colleague of mine that would give a very strong, like in his priorities, title was a big priority. I want to be, like he would say often, I want to be the VP of X, the VP of Y. And he didn't realize what that was was doing to his relationships and how this was affecting, was actually having the the wrong effect that he wanted because people then understood that what he was doing was probably manipulate them and whatnot. And I remember having trouble with that person at some point in time. And I went for advice to another colleague and it's like, dude, my, my other friend, dude, just tell him that you're not competing with him. Just tell him that. Just go to him and say, I'm not competing with you. I want this to work. I don't care who gets the credit. All I want is us to work together to get this done. And I did that. And it worked in this particular, and we're friends today. 
So, you know, every case is a case, but I would, I would definitely be worried if in a small company there's politics and there's my gut reaction is what do we need to do to end this now? Because it will be one of those small crises that will, one of those small problems that will become a very difficult problem to, to solve later, I guess. Which aligns, it sounds like, with the company values that you shared earlier. Yeah. With, I forget how you worded it, but it was something like squash it when it's a paper cut exactly. and not an open wound. Those exactly. are my words, obviously. I'll send you the book um, later. It sounds like a core part of how you've navigated the tech and startup world is by, is by being direct and vulnerable and having the difficult conversations early so that you can get on the same page in a line, which I imagine is hard. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if there are other things that as we chat have been difficult, but part of your journey here. Yeah. About, about the difficult conversations. I remember having an OKR with a buddy and we both read uh, one of Brene's Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. I think it's the title. If my memory is, uh, is not playing tricks on me and we were like, okay, let's create an OKR. We were both managers of teams. And we were like, we need to have two hard conversations per week. And then we would go around the, the office and like, How, how's your KPI going? <laughs> and then we would get together in confidence and share, yes, I, I did mine. It was with this person about this. And we would explore this together. So just like, if you can't do two, just do one. As far as another thing that was particularly hard, I, I have a really hard time being in, in heavily political environments. So that's why when I see an organization that has some of that, I'm like, hey, this may not be the right place because I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be direct. I, I don't want to be in an environment where I can't share that I don't know something, right? I had a previous boss that would, I would have to be careful about what I would tell them because I knew they would be like, Ah, you should you should know this by now. It becomes really hard to be in an environment when you cannot be yourself. It's just really hard. So I try to identify those and run away from those. It's interesting that you mentioned that. One of my first episodes that I filmed was with Ben Williams, who I think you know, and yeah. he shared that early in his journey, no one else put the pressure on him, but he put that pressure on himself to always know. He felt like if somebody asked him a question, no matter how technical or how specialized the question was, he would always feel like he had to know. And he said it drove him crazy a little bit. And just all this pressure, it just felt like this big weight on his shoulders. Oh, yeah. And so it's a really good lesson in that if you're in a leadership position, whether you're a CEO or you lead your own team, that if you ask questions like that, you put weight on other people's shoulders. So it's like you didn't put the imposter syndrome on yourself. Someone else might have made you feel some of those feelings by putting you in that spot. Because of course, nobody knows all the answers. How could we possibly? Exactly. Exactly. That's something that we need to, that we need to keep in mind. That and other things. Like we're not perfect. That's it. Sometimes we have bad days. Sometimes we have good days. I totally agree. So what do you do when something like that happens tactically? Like what goes through your mind? So someone asks you a question. You don't know the answer to it. You feel like, man, I should probably know the answer to this question. Then what? What do you think about? What do you do next? How do you communicate? What stories are you telling in your head? In a safe environment, I would say exactly that. Hey, look, I should know that. I don't. Give me a few minutes. I try not to 
definitely try not to give excuses. Like I try to own it. If I should do something, should have done something, should have known something and didn't, I, I, I try to own it. And some people may say that may be bad for your career because yeah, whatever. I, I, I don't know how to operate in a different way. I have the CEO again, Paulo, which I mentioned before. He would spot in an instant if you were just coming up with an answer on the fly for something that you should know and you didn't. And he taught me this. I like he told me, I hate when people don't know. And instead of saying that they don't know, they're like creating this argument, yada yada. And I'm like, yeah, that makes it so simple. And then he would ask me stuff in public, in meetings and whatnot. And I would say, Paulo, I don't know. And sometimes he would be mad. And I'm like, he's, he's, he's entitled to be mad. I'm just not going to say something different if it's not true. And that's how I, I would deal with it. In my own emotions, in my own head, maybe I was, uh, maybe I still am a bit harsh on myself. But I think, the, again, take the next step. So what, what can I do for this not to happen again? Right. I'll put a reminder on my calendar to look at this metric every week. Oh, I don't know, whatever it might be, but I try to, to just take action instead of criticizing myself. Easier said than done sometimes. <laughs> exactly. You know, I was curious to hear a little bit about how you were able to balance work-life stress as your career has grown and as your team has grown. Because I think a lot of times what I see, the pattern that I see is as the responsibilities grow and the accountability grows... The stress a lot of times grows with that. And so I know you've got a family, you're a family man, and I'm curious to hear how you've navigated that. Yeah, I have two kids. I have two daughters. One is two-year-old and the other one is 11. The first one, the 11-year-old one, she was born. My wife was had decided to take another university degree at the time. So she had her when she was studying. And the university, the university or some... Anyway, it doesn't matter, but they wouldn't tolerate. You had to go to classes, right? They wouldn't give you, even if you had a baby, you wouldn't have any like a week or two or three. So two weeks in, so she had, she could only fail classes two weeks and then she would have to go and she, and she did. And pregnant women have a number of restrictions after giving birth and she had to go to class with those restrictions, uh, Wow. Public, that, that's wild. Public transportation. I had a big team at the time. In, in, at the time, I was entitled to a full month of paternity leave. And I did like a week of that with my wife in this condition and a new baby and a new house. We just moved to the new house just like a week before the baby was born or something like that. And the worst place you can imagine, we make a really bad decision with that house. And I wasn't there for my family. And, and so this, um, this was really bad for my, my wife then had depression and whatnot. Maybe not because of this, but maybe a little bit because of this. And so I look back, this was like 11, 12 years ago. And yeah, I worked intensively for a month after my baby was born. What did I get out of that month? Nothing. Nothing. I got, I got nothing out of that month. Instead, anyway, that's something that 
changed. Like my two-year-old got a full-time dad for 30 days. So I did better 11 years later. And it felt like I, I was completely off the grid. I didn't work. It was a month. Yes, I was like, I'm going to get fired when I get back. I am not doing my job. I sh like I had all of that anxiety, but only for the first two weeks. After And it was gradually going down. Then it was, I hate to say, but it felt like vacation because it, when you have a baby one month, two months, it's definitely not vacation, but it felt like it. I was just doing something else. So um, I just tried to do better the second time. I, it took me 10 years to get another shot, but I, I got another shot. Yeah. And this baby is much closer to both of us than the first one. Like it really, my failure, my failure or my absence really had an impact in my first daughter and the way she bonds. And we work with her still today through, through that. And we maybe punish ourselves still today because of that. I don't want that anymore. And so you learned, right? I mean, you yeah. learned based on the first experience and yeah. just like a lot of the best lessons we have in life, right? We kind of need to fall down to learn that, not that you fell down, but sometimes we need to make mistakes to learn how yeah. to course correct. And we need to learn what things do need our attention. Sounds like you had that experience. Yeah, I have this in my mind. My One of my former bosses used to say, and I posted just this quote on LinkedIn the other day, shutting down is a feature. It's not a bug. And I, I shut down. I shut down at least twice a week for three or four hours. I shut down. I do that. And I've been doing that for the past three months religiously because I pair it with another routine that forces me to shut down, which is skiing. So I'm trying not to kill myself. And I do four hours of skiing just because I have to take my daughter skiing. And then she stays there with the club with the other kids and I am alone and I'm just doing that. When I get home after, so it's like morning, then in the afternoon, like I have much more patience to the young one and it's just different. It feels like I was brainwashed in a good way. I don't know if I ever shared this with you. When I, when I first started working with a professional coach, I was burnt out, man. And I, I, I just was in this loop where it was just more responsibility and more work and I wasn't delegating and I wasn't saying no enough and I wasn't prioritizing well and I just was stressed and overwhelmed. And I started working with this coach and they pointed out that if there's an emergency, like if you're on a plane and there's an emergency, the instruction packet says the first step in the emergency procedure is to put on your own mask. Yeah. The second step is to assist someone next to you, right? And it's a really good analogy for work where a lot of times we help everybody else before we put on our own mask. And yeah. then we wonder, why do we feel the way that we feel? And so having some system, we all need something like that to yeah. power down yeah. so that we can ultimately speed back up. I remember our very first conversation when you were my coach. I think it was even before we started. It was like the first call we had. And you asked, what do you do that gives you energy? And I'm like, oh, shit, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and this was, I was already here in this new context because we worked like last year or whatever, whenever it was. And I, I'm proud to say that I've been, you know, it's not always the same routine, but it's something. And I, um, another thing that, I, that I've learned is 
let's say I plan that I'm going to ski two times a week. I don't want to be a professional skier. I only started skiing this this year. I don't care. I'm doing that because it makes me feel good. It make, makes me feel good. It, it cleans my head and whatnot. If I fail a weekend, that's not a problem. I, I, I'll try not to fail the other weekend. What used to happen to me was um, swimming. I, I also, you know, when there's no snow, I go swimming. Like if I fail swimming, it has to be three times a week, an hour. Otherwise, I don't. It's too much for me. But then I fail a day. And I'll try the next day. And then if I fail the second day, I'll try the next day. What used to happen to me was I would fail to go and then I would be demotivated and then I wouldn't go the next day. And I used that as an excuse not to do anything. Like if I do it once a month, I did it once a month. Yay. Next month, I'll do it twice. Not doing is uh, definitely not the answer. But it's hard. It, it was such a good lesson though, because for whatever reason, especially in the growth space, our brains are hardwired to focus on what we haven't accomplished yet. The numbers we haven't moved, the growth that we haven't achieved, the channels we haven't optimized, the loops we haven't created, right? That's the whole job. It's like, hey, what's the next hit? But if you're not careful, that bleeds into your life too. And you only focus on what I haven't done. Well, I didn't work out twice this week. I only swam for 40 minutes, not yeah. 180 minutes or whatever. And that you have to reprogram your brain to look for the wins. And so that's cool that you're doing that in your personal life. And I'm sure it's bleeding into the professional life as well. It's good stuff. Yeah. You, I think it was you that also recommended to create a trophies file. You have a trophies document in Notion. And I just throw in there small things, big things. And just last week or two weeks ago, I, I went through it. And it made me feel good. I mean, it's nothing big, but it made me feel good. It's a small thing. It's like something that someone says, some, some goal that you achieved. I just go in and paste it in. And if I'm lucky enough to remember that it's there. It's just a good, a good thing. But I, I'm, I'm very I lucky that, now because I don't work in toxic environments now. I have a good context at the moment. So I'm, yeah, also thankful for, for that in my life at the moment. Absolutely, man. It's a good time to stack those trophies, review them proactively. They make you feel good. I mean, I yeah. do the exact same thing. And then look, we all have off days when we feel like we're not our best selves. And I, I make sure to review them that day. But I reveal when things are going well also just so that I can, I can work on it in a lower stakes environment. Like, hey, how does it make me feel? Does it make me feel 10% better, 20% better? It's not going to be 100% better. Yeah. But if it can make me feel a little bit better on a good day, then maybe on a bad day it can raise my baseline just a little bit. And that's always the goal. Dude, I know we're up on time. Thank you for coming on, sharing your experience, my your pleasure. game, your journey. For those who are following and want to interact with you, where should we send them? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so LinkedIn is, would be a good place. Hopefully, you can share that in the show notes. And also, I have a personal website. It's marioaroujo.co, so we'll maybe, maybe add that as well because my name is hard to pronounce. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, I have an ask. The biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. So reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at, at A Kaplan. Otherwise... Hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.